Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 61, Object-Oriented Thinking. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. Well, Kelly, it's uh, kind of getting into a groove now where we are recording after school, face-to-face with plexiglass in between us. But we're in the same room for, I think, the third episode in a row. I know. It's pretty amazing. It's such a different feeling instead of staring at your face in a computer. (laughs) It's like in my face. At least you're there and I can chuck things at you. I think we've all spent a lot of time on Zoom over the last year or so. It's amazing that we're coming up on the the one-year mark of being in this new world. And I have to say, I'm amazed every day at what teachers around the world are doing, what developers around the world are doing to adapt and adjust to this new reality that we have. And it's pretty amazing to see. It is pretty amazing. I don't know. It's going to be hard going back and I don't know, going backwards. Hopefully you don't go back, but having someone's code and saying to the kids, share your screen. (laughs) I'm going to miss that if that ever goes away. Share your screen. I, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I like the idea of being able to share screens and being able to use the technology to collaborate better. I'm just looking forward to more ways that we can do pair programming. We can do side-by-side stuff. When whiteboarding becomes easier, instead of doing digital whiteboarding, we can just grab a marker and write on the wall or wow. on the table or whatever again. So I know that things will go back to normal, but I don't think we'll ever go back to the way it was. No. I hope not. This week, we're going to be talking about object-oriented thinking. We've been doing a lot of discussion between you and I and played around a little bit with teaching some lessons around object-oriented programming. And we've had some really great conversations through Twitter and LinkedIn about the role of object-oriented programming and thinking and how it plays a part in computer science curriculum. So we wanted to go through that in a little bit more depth today and just talk about some of the thoughts that we have and also hear from some of our listeners to hear what they have to say. So before we get into that, we're going to start in the same place we always do. I love it. The win of the week. And Kelly, I am going to make you go first this week. I did just finish finally typing. Is it running properly yet? I'm not quite sure. But that chapter one, the Bayesian uh, code I was working on last time, it is a fairly in-depth code. It's not long in length, but the, the coordinates and the arrays and making sure you don't typo and trying to understand what you're doing. I had to go back and reread. So I, I think that, I feel that's a win that I'm sticking to our book. The book actually has a nice crease in it. It's opening up <laughs> something about the books and being able to just type it. You're so, getting a lot out of that. You've really dug into that book and there's a lot of detail in that first chapter yeah. with I am show and images and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, I originally had typed it in Colab and then I knew it needed a plugin or something with the IM show. It didn't like it and needed a patch. And so I had to go investigate that. So I just finally said, you know what? I'm going back to Visual <laughs> Studio Code. And yeah, it was a great learning process. So those of you who think I just copied the code, no, it's actually the learning process of going through Google Colab, installing and uninstalling Visual Studio because I had a glitch installing all those libraries. It's a huge accomplishment for newbies, I think, just to hack that. Just to get to the point where you can copy the code. Yeah, the copying the code is the easy part. It's getting it started. So yay, me. I have two wins this week. The student win was one of my colleagues just told me I was out this morning for a doctor's appointment. And one of uh, my students said to one of my colleagues, man, I really hope Mr. Tiber's there because computer science class is going to be boring if he's not 
And I thought to myself, for this particular student to say that, it means that something's going, that she's getting into it and she's really liking it. So that was a pretty cool win. A little one, but I'll take it. <laughs> the second win that I had is just a program that I wrote Talk about automate the boring stuff. I, I think I have a new chapter for Al Swigert, if you're listening. Uh, I have 400 iPads that need to get boxed up and shipped out to like an electronics reseller recycler so that they can be disposed of properly. I hate putting stuff in landfills and if it can be reused and repurposed, great. So they shipped us a bunch of boxes to put these all in. And I was looking at the daunting task of hand typing in 400 different serial numbers or barcodes to be able to look them all up, delete them from our management system, log them as being departed, all of that stuff. And I thought to myself, there has to be a better way. So I started learning the Typer library, which is by the same same developer as the Fast API library, but it's a type aware command line interface framework. So it makes it easy to write uh, command line programs. And so I started writing a little command line program that I could hook up a barcode scanner to this thing and you can scan barcodes with it. And every time you scan a barcode, it deletes it from our system using the API for the management server. It logs it to Google Sheets, it logs it to a CSV, and it even lets you put in the box number that it's gonna go into so that I can verify that I've got the exact number of devices in each box. So I probably spent like hours upon hours getting the code working, which was a lot more fun than typing in barcodes, but I think I just scanned in 240 iPads in about like a little over an hour into the system and verified that they were all removed from our systems, logged into this Google Sheet and ready to go. And so it, I was pretty pleased with myself when I got that working, it was really cool. And this, these are the skills that we try to steal from Sean and teach into our with our students. Sean's been, you've been talking about this, I don't know, a couple months. You yeah, I've been probably <laughs> procrastinating on doing this project for months, but. And it's quite funny when he starts to get, he gets an idea for a project. Okay, we're gonna do this and we're gonna, we're gonna code this. And I'm just like, uh-huh, we're gonna do it. And then we walk around the lake and you talk through the problem. I'm like, uh-huh, totally, that sounds exactly right, maybe another if statement in there. And then you'd work through another problem and then all of a sudden it's working. And I think it's that that thought process, which is where I was going with this OOP, this thought process that real programmers, real coders have and the way they think about their code and the objects and the items that they need to do. That's my, I don't know if, I, I, I didn't look at the code, I have to, I'm not gonna Oh, it's to pretty messy right now, you don't <laughs> wanna look at it. But I think you raise a valid point and I wouldn't say that it makes me a real coder because I can use objects and define classes and I know about polymorphism or I know about factory models for designing things or design skeuomorphs or what, I don't know what all those things are and I don't use them all the time. The only thing that makes me a real coder is this idea of finding a problem, designing a solution, breaking down that problem into smaller pieces that I can solve with smaller solutions and finding a way to integrate that all back together into something that actually works. If there's anything that defines me as a real coder, that's probably it. I wouldn't say it's because I write the most beautiful Python code or it's the most Pythonic fluent code. It's being able to break it down into small parts and solve those parts. And right now I've got a bunch of code that really should be refactored into something a lot nicer, but it works for now. 
So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so I have plans. Like I want to make it into something where I can do other actions other than just deleting items. And maybe there'll be something where we can check in and out the iPads to students at the beginning and the end of the year, or we can have other actions that happen with these barcode scanners. Hopefully it turns into something more. I think you're just preparing for the day when you don't have to take the temperature of students and you still have that gun-like beep. I, I still have beep. to have something beep. <laughs> All right. Let's yeah. get it. Fail of the week though. Oh, fails. Oh, goodness gracious. You can go first. <laughs> fail of the week. Okay. I had one student today that we were going through some stuff with APIs and there's a bunch of cool APIs that I found that we talked about a few weeks ago. Simple, clear APIs that you can get without any sort of access. We found one that you can get random kitten photos or photos of kittens that meet a certain size requirement. I put up one that was the weather on Mars. I thought that was really cool. Like you can get the weather currently on Mars, like the average pressure, all of these things. <sighs> <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And this this student was like spinning on her on the stool that she has. She's got like a spinning top bar stool at the, her table, and she's just spinning because this is not cool for her at all. She's like, yeah, whatever, don't care. Yeah, I zoned out too. But then when you started, when you put kittens up, I totally was like, wait, how did you do that? You got to connect it to people's interests. And I don't right? even have a cat. That's but it funny. was it was pretty fun. It was a big fail that she just did not care. So I have to keep trying. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, I don't really think I have any fails right now. I don't think yet. It's been a pretty uh, nice, I'm just going to leave it. I have no fails. Sorry. Typos? Oh, tons of typos. But is that really <laughs> a failure or a learning moment? They're, all failures are all learning All failures moments. are learning. <laughs> okay, so I had tons of typos and that's not <laughs> abnormal. <laughs> I'll just say typos from now on. Nice, nice. Okay, so let's talk object-oriented. It's something that I wasn't necessarily planning to teach this year to eighth graders, and I think I've mentioned on the show a few times. I've done one lesson plan with object-oriented programming, and the goal of it is not to teach students how to use object-oriented approaches or techniques to be able to solve problems. It was to give them a glimpse of how objects, methods, and, and properties or fields work in Python so that they know what they're seeing when they see it. So when they see a string dot lower, they know that's a method and that's different than a function, at least to the point of being able to use it. Mm. There's this idea that they do a lot of copying of what we type, right? So here's a pattern that we've typed in. They mimic the pattern and they change it a little bit to know what it does, but they don't really understand how all the different pieces fit together. So this object-oriented lesson was really about trying to get them to understand that this is an object. And when you see the dot there, it means that you're accessing a method or a property on that object. It can be a little confusing because that whole dot pattern uh, pertains to a confusing. lot of other things too. But, but I think that it's helping, at least for some students, they're seeing, oh, this is a method now, or, oh, here's a property of an object. I guess I, I, for me, it was, and I had asked you before to do classes because I don't get it, objects and classes. And you open up these books and, and nothing on the books because I love the books, the game books and everything. But you open them up and the first, I don't know, 15, 20 pages, you're making a sprite class and you're doing some of the sprite. And I had no clue. I've had absolutely zero understanding of really what I was doing. I copied it. It works. Okay, yeah, I know I'm making some copies of sprites, but... Like I know physically what it's doing. I can see it in the code, but I don't understand it enough. And when I say understand it, I need to be able to explain it to a 10 year old or 11 year old or 12 year old. And I can't do that. So if I can't explain it, I don't know it. And so as I watch you to cheat, teach this object, I'm still seeing the same. I was still seeing the same thing. This is a class and that's a capital letter. And here are the things that are in it. And I started thinking to myself, like, when does it become 
this process that we understand. And you brought up the topic of not necessarily teaching object-oriented programming. We're not worried about that object-oriented programming, but we're talking about the object-oriented thinking. And of course, like I always do, I start Googling, what is he talking about object-oriented thinking? And, and it's just this linguistic aspect of really this way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is definitely a way of thinking, a way of organizing your thoughts. It's a way of organizing your code and making it more reusable. Now, for those of you who are not object-oriented programmers, the good news is you're not, al you're not alone. You're not alone. There are plenty of people who write a ton of perfectly valid and decent Python that works and does the job and everything that doesn't touch object-oriented design principles at all, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't, they don't never define the class and it's fine. Just the same way that in Python, there are people who do a ton of functional programming and that's also fine. There's plenty of room under the tent for everyone and everybody's styles. Mm -hmm. Object-oriented programming is something that was, has been around for a long time. It's not a new concept in programming. If you haven't used it before, it's just this idea that you can create things, objects in code that have properties, which are like met, like variables that are attached to an, an object, a group together. And you have methods, which are like functions, but attached to that same object. So that's the way I try to explain it. And there's, you know, plenty more that you can do with it. And you have these ideas of you can have subclasses. So classes that are inherit properties and methods from their parent classes and all kinds of really interesting stuff that you can do with objects. But this is the point where the kids start spinning in the chairs. And, and that's my point with, and, and, and I'm thinking through this as I'm speaking, but I've done a lot of reflection about OOP. We do it or we wanted to touch on it because they needed it in AP computer science. Some of that, yes. We wanted to prepare them. And, and we know that our kids don't necessarily need to be, need it right now in middle school. We're not saying, oh, listen, everyone, we're, we're coding in classes and everything. But saying the words and getting our students to that point about object-oriented program or even, even where it came from, the point, and I'm, I'm trying to, you'll edit this out. And I guess what I'm, I'm really touching at is in the past, thinking about my progression over the years, I would say to the students, okay, we're going to use a library. We're going to open up the library. Some really smart people or some other coders back in, you know, somewhere made this library and we can type these functions or here's turtle. And why do I have to do turtle? At first I didn't understand it and kids. And I just say, just copy it, just copy it. But if we keep saying that, just copy it, it's irrelevant. And I'm pushing them down the same path. Right. So really understanding that that's a thing that's and you told me that's an instance of turtle i can name it whatever i want bob sally shakira i like abbott and costello for oh. my examples oh i had britney spears and shakira this week nice <laughs> nice and so there is definitely that why are we teaching this question like why does this matter and yes the ap computer science is valid but also the fact that they use objects all the time they are users of objects in python whether you're creating a string or using a date time, or you're doing something with requests and you've got a request object and a response object. There's a lot of things where you're using objects all the time and you may not know what you're using or how to use it. The idea that a student has the ability to learn, this is what an object is, and this is a class, and this is how people define 
object types using classes gives them at least some possible insight into how these things are organized and structured. So when they structure it in that way, then then they get more hopefully out of it. They know which pieces they can manipulate, which things they can change. I can move this object from here to here. I can put a method here or a method there. And that gives them the ability to start using those objects more thoroughly. Now, if you're sitting at home going, there's no reason why students ever need to learn about object-oriented programming, right? Or you're sitting at home saying, everybody needs to learn about OOP. It's vital that they learn it. You're probably both right. There's definitely plenty of strong feelings and viewpoints and opinions about all of this. But I think everyone can agree that if you're going to be a coder, in most languages that have object-oriented programming, you're gonna be a user of objects. And you should know which things that you can move around and which things you can adjust. Whether that means that I know that this string variable that I have, this object that's named something, has a dot lower on it. That also means that it has a dot upper and it means that it has a dot title and it has all these other methods that I can use. And if I'm looking at the documentation, it tells me here are all the methods. I know, oh, I can use any of these. I can swap it out. And I think that's what happened. And I do, we do this a lot. And Sean sees it in the background when I'm sitting there and I start looking and all of a sudden I have this look on my eyes. Holy cow, I just had an enlightened moment. And that happened to me last week when you were teaching it. And I started to see the patterns. I started to see something forming when you were teaching the classes. And this is not the first time you taught it. I guess it's the third time, right? And mm -hmm. I also read for a chapter <laughs> in the book about Ennets and Dunder methods and all classes, and I still didn't get it. But I saw something and I, I was like, Oh my God, it's there. I get it. What did I do that made me finally see and understand and get that mental image? And I started to do my reflection piece where I'm like, oh, deep in my thought, where, why is that making sense to me now? And it has to do with the fact that I transitioned this year into using the word objects. I transitioned into using the word methods. And I started showing kids in sixth grade, not teaching them, object-oriented programming, but I started showing them this is an object. These data types, these are objects, and we're going to call them this. And not, instead of just saying make a variable name and make a string, I changed my terminology. And by me changing the terminology, I'm not saying the kids are going to honestly just get OOP right away, but I started to use that over and over again. And I could now identify what an object was a method. And so when I saw you type it, I was like, holy cow, that's a good first step. Yeah, and I, I think some of this too is maybe going to be better. I have this idea for an anchor chart in my mind or a series of anchor charts that basically diagram the parts of an object and a method. So if you have a string.lower method or whatever it is, abbott.lower, abbott.forward100, to be able to diagram that and say this part Abbott, that's the object. This part here, forward, that's the method name, right? Here's your parentheses, and then this argument here, like 100, that's the argument, and have this elegant bracket or grouping that shows like here are the different parts of the function call or of the method call or a property, and even have it go more complex. So if you wanna get this property on a 
method or on an object, like here's an object that's associated with this object and that one might have a method on it and you can call those and chain them together. But that idea of having visuals and having diagrams mm -hmm. and being able to see how this fits together, I think is the logical next step. The kids who do need to see it or need to have that reference that they can look at will have something that they can see that says, oh, that's the object, that's the method, that's the argument, because it's hard to keep all this straight in your head. Yeah, and I started doing that too, because that mental image, we need that mental image. So I remember it was a class, I don't know, three weeks ago, I was, it was a class three weeks ago, and I said, here's my cup, it's an object. What's inside my cup? Or what does my cup do? It holds things. What's inside my cup? It's a water. So here's my object. Here's what it does. Here's my water inside the parameter. And I was showing them and we went over and over. Or here's an oven. What does it do? It bakes. Or we talked about frying, making chicken. Chicken can be made in an oven. It can be made in a toast, toaster, <laughs> a toaster oven. We can fry it. And again, talking about objects and methods in order to produce stuff. So starting to bring in those mental images, not only cleared up my mind, and then I, I was starting to see, oh, turtle, here's, a, here's an object. And that's also a very par big part of this object-oriented thinking approach is this ability to model objects, right? To be able to take real world things or to take virtual things, theoretical abstract ideas and model them and turn them into classes, give them structure, give them a skeleton that you can work with. And there are people who are amazing at this sort of thing that have these like beautiful object oriented models and everything. But that whole idea of thinking this is a cup, how would I represent a cup with code? It goes to your idea of how do we represent the constitution with code in mm -hmm. our humanities, our government classes? There is a way to do that. And if you were to break down all of these things, you could represent any of these as a I model. can do it with classes? Yeah. I was just thinking that we can do all, all of it. Think about it. So there you have yeah. a constitution object, yes. right? You could have what? Articles yep. in the constitution. You could yep. have sections. Yep. Each article could have sub pieces and everything. It's probably actually just going to look a lot like JSON when you're done, but <laughs> it totally works. The real question is there's, there are so many different kinds of objects that you can create. In Python, they have this concept of data models now, which don't really have your own defined methods. They have, they're there to represent data, but they come with a lot of the built-ins on length of items and, and being able to see some of those dunder methods and stuff like that already built out. And one of the things that I like about Python and I think is fun for the students to see is that they don't always get the fact that everything in Python is really an object, right? Mm. Most things in Python are Not an yet. Not yet, <laughs> but when they, they start to see it, when you can show them that, oh, you can use a dunder string method to create the string representation for an object. So now if I want to print my object that I created, I just say print this course or what, print the cup, it prints the cup the way I want it to look, right? That I can make it work like a built-in object in Python and do some cool things. And that sort of thing, when they start to realize that they can create their own stuff in Python that behaves like the other stuff in Python that they're already familiar with, for some kids, that seems to just really make their eyes light up and get excited about it. That's what I'm hoping for, because we do this progression in sixth grade. I think the, the sixth grade, I, I our curriculum, not sharing too many secrets, obviously, we do about three weeks of Python concepts and we get them coding. Cause someone was asking me, how do you get them coding? And I was like, I don't know, we just do it. We start coding. We just start coding. We do a lot of coding. I would love to see how many lines of code 
the sixth graders actually code or write in a quarter. It'd be interesting. But then we do the turtle uh, module. And again, showing them that here's this method, here's this object, we're doing this to the turtle, we did this to the strings, and now we can do whatever. And then we're going to go into the BBC microbit. And I just had this lightning idea, ooh, the circuit Python. Maybe that's what I'm missing because I couldn't ever figure out we're going to do this circuit. Why was it circuit, playground, CP, whatever? So there's your moment to make the connection. When you import that board.circuitplayground as CPX, CPX is an object, an instance of the circuit playground that has things on it. It has buttons, it has neopixels, it has sound, it has all these different components that you can use. I have a tip for anyone teaching beginners because this is the problem. So a lot of people import turtle as T. That right there keeps the kids from seeing that object. So import turtle. You import turtle. And, and I, then, make then you can name T and Bob and Sarah and Judy and whatever. Abbott and Costello. Abbott and Costello. I know you love that. <laughs> Kids don't get it <laughs> until you show them. And then, <laughs> and then even then, some of them are like, this is amazing. And other ones are like, no, this is awful. Who watches this? But that's the thing is showing those kids and then import, import a circuit playground as CPX. It doesn't make sense to beginners. So that process of showing them the thinking, showing them where it comes from, breaking it down, and really getting into, again, the object-oriented thinking. Not necessarily teaching the classes, but showing them where that comes from. That has helped me finally go, aha, three years later, aha. I get why those books started with sprites classes. And I think the interesting thing, even when I'm teaching objects and teaching classes, is that I see some of my students who are like, this makes so much more sense. Why were you even bothering to teach me about dictionaries to store data when I could have written classes instead? This makes, this is great. I love this, right? And then you have other students who are like, but I like dictionaries. Dictionaries are my friend. Why would I use a class when I can just write a dictionary? And you get to see that preference emerge, right? It's one of the cool things about teaching beginners is you can see those early preferences that they have as developers and what they like to do and what they don't like to do and how they like to think about things and solve problems. There are a lot of programmers who are comfortable programmers. I know how to do it this way. I know how to make it work. It's really great. And then you also have the people who never can do the same code twice. <laughs> like they're, they're like, last time I did it with object-oriented program, but this time I'm gonna do it with this new functional pro- programming paradigm that I learned about because I think it'll be really cool to do it where none of it is destructive. <laughs> okay, like that's also cool. And they get to do that. I think, again, we honed in on that part of our curriculum. We did the schedule in seventh grade and we did five versions of the schedule using all the basics of Python concepts and adding a few libraries. And then you do it again, showing them, hey, we can make a a class out of that. And I think that's why I finally got it. I was looking. And there's a reason why I chose that. One of the reasons why I wanted to use the schedule of, you know, course classes that people are taking, their daily schedule. The reason why I wanted to use that as one of my examples is because they had coded it. They were familiar with it. They're like, okay, I get the idea of the structure in a list of dictionaries. But then when we changed it to be class-based, right, with a schedule class and a course class, then they could see, oh, it's similar ideas, but a different implementation. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think is really important about teaching computer science compared to the way that uh, some subjects have been taught traditionally. How many times when you're growing up did you think that there was only one way to do something or this is the one answer? 
But if we show, hey, there's five different ways that you could solve this problem or 10 different ways or potentially an infinite number of ways that you can solve it, then I do think a lot of students, not every student, but a, a lot of students become much more invested in their answer to the problem. How do I solve this? What, what could I do that makes this work? And you have to praise them equally for the really sophisticated, elegant uh, solution as well as the Maybe it's the brute force or it's the comfortable way to get it done. But they're like, look, I know how to do this and I got it to work and it's great for me. Like it works for me. And that's something that's valuable too. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the question which we could ponder, and this is going to be applicable to anyone who teaches computer science and at what point, whether you're middle school or high school, AP, college, or as a learner, when and, and we're still struggling with this, but when do students need to really understand classes? We're going to cycle back into that. But and, when? and your options can be from the very beginning <laughs> to absolutely never, right? Like you have this whole range that you can choose from. And I think it's okay to be a little bit provocative here and say from the very beginning or absolutely never, but here's why. I would like to say, and, and hopefully maybe colleges are listening, but instead of saying, oh, you need to teach classes or you need to teach object-oriented programming, you need to give them an instance. You need to give them a problem. And then they should, if that problem thrives or works better with a class, i.e. an arcade game, then yeah, okay, let's teach the objects. And well, I think the choices are what makes it interesting. Yeah. Because when students have to make choices and it's not an easy and clear, oh, this is the best option the that's when they really start to learn and think when they have to make trade-offs in their dis decisions that is really interesting why did you choose a class over a list of dictionaries i knew that a list of dictionaries would get the job done but i also felt that it would be clunky and hard to read over time especially as i did more of it so i chose classes because i thought it would be more readable it would make it easier to do but i knew i would have to invest more time up front to define the classes that's an interesting trade-off conversation to talk about the cost of design versus the cost of use and where do you want to spend your effort and depending on how much you're going to how much time you're going to spend in either area either situation could be or either design approach could be perfectly valid depending on those trade-offs that you want to make and i think that's that just raised another idea and this is maybe my fifth tenet that you know from my article i'll add a fifth one on my article in that design process wouldn't it be cool as someone who's writing a book, not me, during their arcade that you have them draw out how they organize it. Here's your little sprite person. Mm -hmm. And that's your, that's a, is it just a class of sprite? But what attributes does that sprite have? Mm -hmm. Does he run fast? Does he have spiky hair? Does he bite and fly? I don't know, whatever, when you're making games. But I would be willing to bet if there was a place where the kids would actually have to draw out and set those attributes and set what methods or what they're mm -hmm. going to do, that they actually drew it out before you had them copy, here's my class sprite and here's myself and everything else in there, which no, and I and made copies. Yeah, and I've done a ton of paper design and having to know when's the difference between when you create a new instance of something and you just set different variables or different parameters and, and methods on it, 
or when you are subclassing it, right? So you're creating a whole new subclass of objects. And this really gets into that idea of abstraction and the ability for students to make abstract concepts from specific examples and that kind of uh, induction process that they go through to be able to take a lot of the different stuff that they're seeing in the real world and come up with abstract classes, come up with concrete classes, subclassing things, figuring out when to make a class versus when to make an instance. All of those things are helpful for building this idea of abstraction and the skills of being able to abstract things. And so that's one of the things that I believe is helpful about object-oriented thinking and object-oriented programming is it naturally lends itself to abstraction. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of other ways that you can do it, but I always liked it because I could map it usually to real-world things or some real concept that I'm trying to create. Interesting. I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on in my head. So these are, again, this is why Sean and I have these great conversations because as he's thinking, and I normally write down stuff, just processing the, the thought. I want to touch base on something that you had said to me and I, I wrote in the blog was it's often hard for people who finally can see, and this is one of the reasons also it's good to have a podcast. It's really hard for people that already see the classes and can say instances and do I do a subclass. It's hard for them to think about what it felt like when you couldn't see it. How do you unlearn what you have already learned? Thought, metacognitive thought. And I, I, I go out there to all these people that who have been teaching computer science for so long. I'm telling you from the beginning, it's hard to see it. It is so hard at that point and hold on to that point when you finally get that aha when i saw the pattern and i was like holy crap i need to write this down because what did i do to see it it's it's amazing because it is a very personal thing for each individual who's going through the process your journey of learning something like that and i wouldn't say it's specifically object oriented but it it is that whole idea of a transforming moment in your thinking a mind shift an epiphany, like whatever word you want to use for it. I first started learning object-oriented design more than 20 years ago when I was in college and learning it in computer science programs, okay? I can't remember what it was like before I knew about classes and objects. And I still wouldn't say I'm particularly proficient at using them, but when someone says object in class, I know what they're talking about. When they talk about object inheritance or subclassing something, I know what they're talking about. But there was a time when I didn't. And I don't remember for me what it was when I crossed over from not knowing to knowing. And so if you are a teacher who's going through that process, to Kelly's point, hold on to those things. What was it for you? And write it down. And write it down for us, please. <laughs> like for me specifically. <laughs> write it down because I don't remember what that was. What was it for me that said, oh, I get it now. And I can't tell you if it was some way that someone explained it to me, if it was just banging it out, like writing out the code enough times until I was like, oh, I get it, or trying to make my own class. There was something that made that work, and I just can't remember what it was. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for anyone who's beginning to learn how to code, those teachers who are making that transition. We have something huge to offer. We have something huge to offer to a lot of experienced coders, experienced teachers, and we have that newness. We have that that epiphany moments, those opportunities to remember what it's like to struggle with. It's that saying that kids always say, I'm so confused. I was literally so confused. I just, I, 
I don't, sometimes I tune out, Sean, because I'm just so confused. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to be that child who says, I'm so confused. I just want to stop and figure out what point or where am I confused? Right. And so we have something to offer there as newbies. And if you start feeling that imposter syndrome, don't because that that feeling of not knowing or maybe not feeling that you're good enough or whatever, that's a moment to share. Yeah. And I think being new is a beautiful thing. Being new to something gives you a license to ask dumb questions and to challenge in an appropriate way or question the assumptions that other people make. What do you mean by when you say class? What does that mean? And so for someone like me who throws the word around without really thinking about it, I have to sit back and say, well, what do I really mean by class? How do I explain this to someone who may not understand? And it's always worth it for that. So if you are new to this, if you're trying to figure it out and you're like, I, there's more, so much more that I don't know about programming, embrace that newness. It gives you a license to ask dumb questions. And, and those dumb questions are not that dumb. We had a couple of e listeners email us about this, about Kelly's blog post. It's gotten some good traction on LinkedIn. There's been a variety of different responses from, I can't believe you guys are already teaching object-oriented programming to why the heck would you teach object-oriented <laughs> programming? And that's one of the things we love about this topic is that everyone has strong opinions. Please respectfully share yours, right? Don't let it get out of control, but we would love to hear your opinions about when and how and where to teach object program object oriented programming or other things that are similar to this that maybe should or shouldn't be taught functional programming or some sort of, of new language like when should this language be taught versus this other one i'm having the question right now when do i introduce html and javascript to my students do they really need to know <laughs> I don't know. It was fun just saying HTML and web scraping and beautiful soup and NTLK library the other day. I wish I can't say it enough. I wish we had more time in our class because there's so many cool things that yeah. we could be doing. Yeah. Object oriented thinking. Let's not confuse it. Object oriented programming necessarily. That's that concept of object oriented thinking and that process of changing the design. Exactly. Exactly. So if you'd like to talk more with us about this, you can always hit us up on Twitter. We're at Teaching Python. Kelly is at Kelly Perret on Twitter. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter. Let's see here. What am I I'm on? I'm on LinkedIn. Oh yeah, Kelly is at on LinkedIn, so you can search for her. I'm on LinkedIn as well, though not as well published as <laughs> Kelly is. But share some information with us. Let us know what you're thinking. Share your opinions. Tell us what you're thinking about how to teach this, when to teach it, why to teach it. Does it have value? We'd love to hear from you. We're also looking at bringing in some new channels for us because I'm like I like to procrastinate on more than one thing at a time. We're looking at starting a live stream for some of our our video um, recordings so that you could uh, chat with us there. We're looking at a, a couple of different ways that we can make our experience a little bit richer together with you, our community. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. There's a link on the show notes to support us on Patreon. We are bringing in bias a cup or bias a coffee as another option for those of you who would like to try something or else. a weird tea <laughs> or a weird tea kelly enjoys her weird tea and we are presenting at live curious and go beyond.com so that's a presentation that's on february 20th and, and we're going to be summarizing all the things we learned from um, teaching kids to code yes is that right and we're going to try to do that in a short amount of time so we're going to have to pick our favorites but that's out of the international 
school in Monterey, Mexico. Yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting. There's a lot of great speakers there, and we are lucky to be part of that. Yeah, and it's free, I think. So I will we'll post the, the notes on there and the link on there, and hopefully you can join it. Don't get us wrong. Even if it's free, you can still pay us. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be mercenary. <laughs> Send us a tip, what, whatever. <laughs> but we would love to have you um, come out and support us. Let us know what you think. I think that does it for this week. Any other announcements or anything? No. I've got a new library I'm checking out that is built on the arcade library. So hopefully I'll fire that up this weekend and check it out. It's supposed to be even more beginner friendly than arcade, which is great. And we had a listener send us a whole bunch of cool NLTK library projects. I can't wait to dig into them. Yeah, I think they're all in Jupyter Notebooks. Okay, so we're going to dig into those. We'll post a link to that in the show notes so you can check it out. So lots of great stuff coming from our listeners. Please keep it coming. We're looking forward to hearing from you. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off.